Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. Well, um, we're going to continue on in our series this morning. Um, that we've been looking at called uh, Far As the Curse is Found, and we're kind of entering into a little bit of transition. Thanksgiving, next, next Sunday, hopefully we're doing an outdoor service. We'll see. The temperature keeps going down and the precipitation keeps going up. So we're going to see how tough you really are, um, uh, how much you really love Jesus if you come out next week. No, but that's why we're trying to do videos, so that either way, if it's snowing, if it's raining, if it's whatever, uh, that we can still share stories of encouragement with one another, um, and we can enjoy the week of Thanksgiving. We're going to continue this week, and we've looked at this creation, rebellion, redemption narrative, uh, and before we get into the specific covenants that God makes with His people following the creation uh, account, and how God works with his people through the, through the Hebrew Scriptures and into uh, the time of the coming of Jesus, um, we're going to transition that a little bit during Advent, um, but so far, or, but, but I want to finish this week, um, we've looked at some of the foundational things. What, what are some foundational elements of our world that are addressed through this creation, rebellion, redemption narrative? So we looked at work. How is work, how was it designed to be? How did our rebellion mess it up? Uh, and then what is our hope? What does work look like redeemed? And we looked at rest through that creation, rebellion, redemption uh, narrative. Last week we looked at marriage like as a whole, more technically, and this week we're going to look at marriage more practically. But, but I want to back up from that even as we enter into this transition uh, toward Advent in that, that creation and rebellion narrative, redemption of being redeemed but not yet right? This already but not yet. And how do we love? How do we carry on? How do we minister not only as in friendships, uh, in community, as the church, uh, and then really kind of pressed in with a focus on how do we love sacrificially when it comes to marriage? Um, So with that, uh, it's been a while since I've shared this uh, illustration, so I get to share it this morning. Back in the early 2000s, there was a movie, So-So, it was okay. It wasn't one of his best, but I think it's underrated. Uh, Leo DiCaprio movie called The Beach. Anybody, anybody ever seen The Beach? Okay. So here's the story of The Beach. Leo and his friends find out that there's this magical utopian type of place off the coast of Thailand, I think, where it's guarded on one side by a giant reef and cliff, and then on the other side by a giant reef, reefer. Uh, the, there's lots of pot farmers on the other side of this beach. Um, so I thought that was funny, uh, and it just hit me. Um, so, uh, so this beach was like totally isolated off from the world, and a bunch of young 20 to 30-year, uh, you know, sexy uh, single people had somehow found their way to this beach, um, and they were surviving. I guess you hunt in the ocean uh, for your food. I don't know where they got drinking water. Gaps were not important in this movie, and then apparently all the drugs they could do you know, right there behind them. Um, and, and so Leo and his friend finally find their way to this beach, and it's beautiful. They're playing volleyball all day, and they're happy, and it's just an endless celebration, and it's all everything you think this is the epitome of life, a permanent vacation. Uh, until one day, uh, one of the guys gets bit by a shark. 
uh, and they're all right there to rush to him, and they're all right there to care for him, and they pull him out of the water, and it's bad. And so they care for him, and he starts to, he's, he, he's, he's in bad shape. Um, and initially they thought, well, okay, let's just keep him going and he'll get better. But then a couple days went by, and his moans and his cries didn't get quieter, and he wasn't getting better, and they thought, we need to do something. Well, they were stuck because he could not, he didn't have the strength to swim to get to where he needed to be so that they could take him. They didn't think he would survive a trip to get to the mainland. And, and faced with the question of, do we go and get people to come in and get him, means we have to give up our paradise, our utopia. And as ethical and moral as we may be, we're not willing to sacrifice our personal utopia for this guy's life. And so they show him inside the beach, and man, he's cramping the party because they're trying to enjoy and have conversations still, and they hear cries and moans. And so finally, eventually, what they decide to do, and it's a hard decision, it's not, it's not universally accepted, but what they decide to do is they need to take him out into the woods. Maybe the farmers will pick him up. We just need to get him out of earshot, and who knows? Maybe the farmers will pick him up, and that'll do it. And if they don't pick him up, then he'll be left there to die, but, but, but at least it'll be, it'll be out of our problem, and we can get back to our personal utopia. And, of course, some people are very upset about this. And Leo DiCaprio, as they're walking back to the beach, as they drop him off there in the middle of, of the forest, they're walking back to the beach, and this is what Leo DiCaprio, as the narrator, says. He said, what I realized in a shark attack or any other major tragedy, I guess the important thing is to get eaten and die, in which case there's a funeral, somebody makes a speech, and everybody says what a good guy you were, or get better, in which case everybody can forget about it. Get better or die. It's the hanging around in between that really ticks people off. We live life in this in-between. We may deny it, we may live in denial of that, but we live life in this in-between. The world around us is great at, at addressing acute problems, problems with specific things that can fix it. But it's that hanging around in between. It's that abiding. It's that lifelong presence that can get hard. Um, now, if we are in Christ... We are, we are uh, being redeemed, but what does that look like? Traditionally, I was raised with the idea that to be a Christian means you trust Jesus, which means you go to heaven when you die, which hopefully is a while from now, and then you spend the rest of your life trying to get other people to go with you and trying not to sin as much, or at least trying not to let other people know that you sin as much, and then you know, hopefully that all works itself out and you get to go to heaven eventually one day at a ripe old age and people can show up and say nice things about you at your funeral. Um, but when you look in Scripture, that's not exactly how it works. Redemption is a little bit more involved in that. In redemption, we're actually being shaped and molded to become more and more like Jesus. We're being shaped to be conformed to the image of, of, of Jesus, which involves good days. It can involve volleyball on the beach and, you know, hunting for fish, and I guess that's fishing, uh, and, you know, and it can involve good days, and it can involve painful days. 
It's not just get better and die. In fact, a lot of it is just life in between and entrusting Jesus to work in the midst of that. The goal of the Christian life is never to need Jesus less. Okay, let me say that again. The goal of the Christian life is never to need Jesus less. It's not to get your disciplines in order and your practices in order and don't sin as much so that Jesus has time to worry about those other sinners. The goal of the Christian life is to become completely dependent on Jesus. If anything, we don't need him enough. And so how do we practice and learn and grow and trust and be refined and rebuked and changed and formed to become more and more like Jesus, and in doing so, to actually become more of who we were designed to be. And then how does doing that, how do we do that, uh, how does marriage actually shape that? And we can back out from that, we can back out from that to say, how does the church community and loving one another in church community, how does loving one another in deep friendships, and then pressed in, how does loving somebody in marriage, how does it do that? So if the goal of the Christian life is to become more like Jesus, what do you think the goal of the Christian what do you think the goal of marriage is? Let me give you a hint. It is not uh, it is not first personal fulfillment and happiness. You've not found the one person that will make you happy the rest of your life. That's a hint. The goal, of, the goal of marriage, the goal of Christian marriage is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. It means you have to learn a whole lot about yourself. You have to learn, you know, sometimes you learn how selfish you are. Sometimes you learn how crazy other people are. Like when they, I've shared this before, when they actually put the toilet paper coming down underneath. When every sane person knows toilet paper comes over the top. And you have to deal with, and those are things you have to work through in marriage. Um, we become conformed. It's learning a lot about ourselves. It's learning how to love and care for another person in a radical covenant commitment. It involves problems that can be fixed, but it also involves a whole lot of life in the in-between. It's abiding together, good times and hard times. Uh, several weeks ago when we talked about Genesis chapter 3 and the rebellion, um, first thing that Adam and Eve did when they sinned, do you remember what the first thing they did was? They covered themselves up. They felt naked, they felt shame, and so they hid. They covered themselves. You can remain, uh, you, you can treat people well and remain very self-protected. You can be a very nice person and a good citizen and remain self-protected. You can have a good marriage. Let me tell you something. You can not be a follower of Jesus and actually have a good marriage, but also in that marriage remain very self-protected. But to fully love somebody, to fully want for their good and have your life bound to theirs and tied to theirs whether it's in deep committed friendship, whether it's in the bonds of church community, and certainly within the covenant of marriage, God will be faithful to pry our self-protective arms away from us. Because to love somebody else is to be vulnerable. It's to be vulnerable. C.S. Lewis's famous quote, he says this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. 
Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It won't be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love, to fully love, is to be vulnerable. Now, why do I start there? Trey, come on, man. Why do you start there? Why do you always go to like the worst case scenario and start there? And listen, I know. I know, and I know it gets tiring. My wife tells me it gets tiring. But why do I start there? Because I think if we start there, I think marriage can become really, really, really good. I think if we start there, if we start from that perspective, I think marriage can overcome a whole lot of very difficult obstacles and challenges. If we start there, I think what can happen is God can begin to change me to become a better man and a better husband without me trying to change my wife as much so that she becomes what I want her to be and so that I can manipulate and change her so that it's easier for me or vice versa. And I think if we start there, whether it's friendships, whether it's church community or marriage, we stand the chance to become way more and more like Jesus. If we can move out of self-protection, either playing the martyr all the time or this, I, you know, I, I submit to nobody, I will do what I want, I will do what I please. I think we have a, a much better opportunity to benefit and grow in our relationships and in our joy. Seriously, when you take the pressure off of another sinner to be your savior, you might be pleasantly surprised. So, let me read the passage this morning. This is going to be from Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, this is a good passage that is both people love and hate. Let me read that, and then we're going to dive into this and look at a practical view of marriage. I'm going to try to give more focus on one particular area uh, for, for wives and for husbands. But Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21, Paul's talking about the church, and then he moves into marriage. Verse 21, he says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right, everybody calm down. Bible is best read in context. We'll keep going. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, we all get... We all get picky at that first one, wives, submit to your husbands. Paul just told husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I would ask which charge seems to be a little bit more heavy. Okay, we'll come back to that. Gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. So, um, 
I included verse 21 because I think it's helpful to know that Paul is talking about the church, especially when we come to this word that none of us like, this idea of submit. Paul's talking to the overall church, and this is what you need to know. The life of a follower of Jesus is a life of submission. Not just one person, not just one role in the household. A life of a life. Uh, as a follower of Jesus, is a life of submission. And so Paul ends this call to the church to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we're going to look at that word as it pertains to wives submitting to their husbands. Um, But instead of presuming what that means and walking in ignorance, which I find a lot of men to do, uh, or saying, well, I don't like it, so let's change it which we're never given, that's above our pay grade, we're never given that permission. Um, let's look at what it, what it means. First thing that you'll notice is it says, wives submit to your own husbands. It does not say women submit to men. Okay. That's important to know. It was very important in this day. Paul is saying for wives to be committed to their own husbands. And it's important that we understand submit in a biblical context. Submit is not the same thing as obey. In fact, Acts 5.29 says for all everyone um, that we must obey God over men. That applies across the board. Our first obedience, our obedience is to God alone. Now, let me stop here for a second because this passage has been used uh, in an abusive way. It's been used to hammer women with. Uh, This passage has been uh, abused, and therefore wives have been abused by it. Um, And then, unfortunately, when we see the abuse of this, sometimes we can overreact the other way, uh, where we say we dismiss it and just totally take it away. This passage does not support abuse in any way. In fact, I would say again, the higher call is to the husband. That's not... That's not me going up here going, the higher call is to the husband. That's me saying, if you're saying my wife needs to submit, I want to see a whole list of things that you're doing that have made that a whole lot easier. You with me on that? Does that make sense what I'm saying there? Okay, this is not a license for abuse in any way. Um, This does not support neglect nor coercion by men at all. Um, uh, this call to women does not put less of a call on husbands to love their wives, but it actually puts a higher calling on husbands to love their wives. I remember a story when I was, when I was in Texas, a pastor was speaking at a conference and he said that a woman showed up to his church one day and she had bruises and, uh, they asked what had happened. And she said that her wife told her husband told her to submit. And when she didn't, uh, that he hit her. And so the pastor said, I took a few elders over there, and we went and laid hands on him. Women, this is not about, this is not about you having no rights. This is not about you in any way being lesser than, but nor is it to be thrown out as if the goal of husbands and wives is to be completely independent of each other. We talked about this last week in, in the role of helper. If a husband is abusing you, you tell somebody. You call the police. That's how you help him because it's not good for him or for you or for the marriage. Okay? 
To submit in a biblical context, so what does it mean? To submit in a biblical context is actually from a position of strength and power with the goal of helping and empowering your husband that you would use the gifts and resources that you have that God has given you to help your husband become a better husband, a better father, a better man, a better worker, a better follower of Jesus. Garden of Eden, Eve is given the task of helper, the the role and the task of helper. And her role then was to help Adam cultivate the garden and work the land, to help him obey and trust God, and to be receptive of his love and care for her. Okay? To submit does not mean the wives, the husband makes all the decisions. Uh, I've shared this before, the only time that this card has ever been played in our marriage, my wife is the one that used it. We were struggling with where to go after seminary and what, what calling to accept, and we were on our way back to Texas, and we were driving down 44 in Oklahoma, and I was just distraught, and my wife, and I, I kept saying, what do you think? What do you think? Which job? We had two jobs, and she said to me, honey, I love you. I'm going to follow you wherever you decide to go, but you know my thoughts on this. You know my preferences. You know which place I would rather you go. You are, you are going to make the decision. You're not going to put it on me, and you're not going to blame me. And it was kind of that, you need to man up. I, and I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and then chose the exact opposite of the one she wanted. She was, that's a whole other story, probably another See what happens when I go off my notes. Um, To be the helper, that means when your husband is doing well, when he's leading well, when he's husbanding well, encourage that. Fan that flame. Be receptive. And if he's not doing it well, lovingly oppose him for his good. Honey, I don't think this is good. I don't think this is right. Um, Now, most of us in, in... glorious Midwest fashion. Most of us don't speak the truth very well. We kind of passive-aggressive our way around stuff. Uh, sometimes we're, only, we're tempted to only bring up things when it's going wrong, right? We're, we're, we presume, well, this is what you're supposed to do, but here's the list of things that you're doing that you're not doing well, or this could be better. So wives, I just want to tell you right now, most men I know, I, there's exceptions to all of these things. Please hear me on this, and it's hard to cover the entire gamut. Most men I know are very encouragement deficient. Most men I know have a large deficiency of encouragement. Several years ago, we did interviews with married couples and some older married couples and some younger married couples and some more experienced married couples. And one couple that we, that we talked to, and I, I love them dearly, and during this interview, she, was, she would bring out everything that he did that she loved and she appreciated. And she was like, he does this, and I'm so thankful for this. And he's so creative when he does this, and he does this. And, um, and I just kind of made note of that. And, and he chimed right in there. And she said, it's easy for me. I'm, I'm just, I've always been a very good appreciator. And he jumped right in, and he was like, she has. And it's made a huge difference in me. 
And this is not a guy that was, it was a guy that was easy to love by this stage of the game, but he had served in the military. He had been through several addictions. He had, he had really struggled in a lot of areas. But she just kept encouraging him. And here's the deal, just so you know, women, if I'm, if I'm letting you in on this or, or, or maybe I'm not, a lot of times it's really hard for men to ask for encouragement because it feels needy because most men are raised with be strong, be self-sufficient, don't ever let them see that you have problems to ride in on that white horse and be the hero. And it's hard for us to ask for encouragement. But I want to ask you on their behalf, men crave affirmation and encouragement it's in, and it's in really short supply right now. And it's hard. For the most part, there are always expectations, and men know that there's always expectations. And men, most men I know often have a very acute sense of what we do wrong. And a lot of times we just crave to hear what we're also doing well. And this is, quite honestly, this is the roots of what Paul is talking about. Submit, honor, and respect. See what good, see what's good, see what they do. And I'm not, I'm, not telling, I'm not telling you don't ever bring up things that they're doing wrong or things that they could improve or things that you, you could say, hey, this is something I, I could really use from you. This is something that would be helpful. Don't expect men to read your mind and don't say, well, they should know. They should know if you told them. If you want texts, if you want letters, we had a marriage summit early on in our marriage after I gave a, a VHS uh, Keanu Reeves movie for an anniversary gift. We had a conversation, no, not ever again. And my wife, I'm grateful for this. At first, it wasn't like romantic and, and awesome, but she was like, Don't, this, here's what I want. Here, here are the things. If you want to know what I would like, here's the things. And then from there on out, it's, I don't have any excuses. Women, see what, wives, see what's good, what they do to contribute, what is good and helpful, and honor that. Bring attention to that. Um, I want to tell you, if this is what it is to submit to your husband, it's, it's more than this, but if this is part of what submission is, you have, wives, you have tremendous power and influence for good when you encourage when you bring up the things that are good, even if there's nine out of ten things are wrong and you can go, yeah, but here's one thing that you really did good and I appreciate that. My wife is an ISTJ and she's a one on the Enneagram, so wherever you fall on that, those platforms. And this is what that means. My wife, in her personality, and it's glorious in a lot of ways, in her personality, she walks into a room and goes, okay. I see everything in here that's off that needs to be better, that needs to be fixed in some way. Here's how I could make this better. And uh, I love her for that, but that's her first instinct is what's wrong that I can make better. And so often she would see me the same way. And a lot of times it came from a good motive, but that was hard. It wasn't oppressive. Um... And eventually I realized what was happening. And I just, I said, hey, this, I've, I feel like there's always something wrong. Like I'm always doing something wrong. And even when I do something well, the first thing you see is what, what could be better. And I don't know if I'm doing anything right. 
And I want to tell you something. We've been married 24 years, and she has worked very, very, very hard because that's not her natural disposition. And she's worked very hard in two areas, to bring to light what she sees and what she appreciates and what I've done well, and to not say everything else that she sees that I could do better. And that's huge. And that's made a huge difference in me, and it's made a huge difference in our marriage. And it's not something that either one of us was doing with malicious intent. It was our natural personalities. Wives, here's the deal. You're not called to lose yourself and not not be you, and you're not called to be a second-class citizen, but nor are you called to assert yourself um, and be married but remain completely independent. We are called to be bound together. So there's an active submission to your marriage that says, I will use every weapon in my arsenal by God's grace for the good of my husband and for the good of our marriage. And I'll tell you, it'll be hard at times. And you'll mess up for sure. But, but I will tell you, it does tend to pay off. It does tend to produce in your husband the things that you want to see. The things that you're hoping for. And here again, I'm not telling you to never bring up things that need to change. I'm not telling you to never bring up issues that are hard and difficult at all. But I know a lot of men that carry a ton of shame and they will fill in the blanks of the negatives. And you have, you have power to fan that flame or you have power to fight against it. I think all of us probably these days are pretty low on encouragement. So I'll tell you all, practice on your spouse, encouragement, but also maybe look at eight to ten people that you come across on a weekly basis. Just say, how can I encourage them? How can I start to see things in them that are good that I can, that I can uh, encourage? And there's more aspects of this, but for the positive, it's one thing you can take from today. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself in beauty without, uh, and in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. Let me tell you something. If you read this just for the first time, where do you think Paul puts the greater weight? Wives, submit to your husbands, or husbands, love your, li- love your wife and give up your life for her. That's a heavy calling. That's a heavy calling. Husbands, here's what you need to know. This work is not passive. You don't ever get to get away with, ah, she knows that. She knows I love her. Nope, she may. She may get it here, but that's a battle every day here. For your mind and for her mind. Um, And it can be easy to neglect. And it requires effort and it requires intentionality to see and hear and value and pursue your wife. And hear me on this, okay? Pursue your wife. Yes, physically and sexually, that's not unimportant. Um, In fact, in some cases, it's incredibly important um, if it's an area of neglect. But also not just physically and sexually, but also emotionally and spiritually. Creation order, husband is given authority as the head. Now, authority is a bad word. We don't like it because usually when we think of the idea of authority, we only think in negative cases. If you have good authority, you don't think of it as authority. That's my boss, but uh, he's not really my boss. 
we all have a good time, and he sets good parameters, and he protects us from people that are over there, and uh, she looks out for us and makes our team even better, right? You don't look and go, ah, they're the authority. Good authority invites, uh, this is not this closed fist holding it over. Um, Good authority is freeing and protective and life-giving and helpful. The sin and temptation of the husband is either to abandon or abuse his headship. The temptation for, for Eve, for the, for the wife, in that same manner, is to either abandon or abuse her role as helper. Either to go, I'm a doormat and I'm never supposed to say anything and I'm just second and believe that lie about God. Or to say, I am woman, hear me roar, I will submit to no man and, and to kind of believe the lie about God there. It's when we work together, when we ultimately submit to one another. First, men, your role of husband is to make it as easy as you can for your wife to trust you and honor you and respect you and to fight to be respectable, to listen, to invite her insight, to be humble. I used to think, and you can laugh at me, and I'll take the hit on this one, but I know this is, I know I'm not alone. I used to think to lead my wife in repentance was to tell her all the things that she needed to repent of. Help her see. Help her see. Here, honey, here's some more things that you needed to repent of. Um, no. Nope. Nope. That's not, that's not it. All right? Just a little hint. That doesn't usually go well. Okay? You either crush her or you will make her mad. Okay, so your, how you lead in repentance is being the example. You repent first. You repent often. You deal with the junk in your own drawer before you bring hers. You deal with the log in your own eye so that you can see clearly to deal with any specks that might be in hers. And then your fight becomes for your spouse, not with her, but for her, that she would also grow in her trust of God, to remind her that she is a child of God, that she is valuable, that she is not lesser than, nor does she have to prove her value and worth, her independence. This is washing over her with the water of the word. You're putting God's love for her on display by growing and learning and loving her well, not by riding in the white horse and trying to be Jesus, but by, by exemplifying your need for Jesus. In loving her well, in humility. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, every time I talk through this passage, Paul's use of laundry metaphor jumps out at me without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. And we've talked about this before. Uh, when you think of wrinkles, what are wrinkles? Wrinkles are easy. You can fix wrinkles, right? just takes a little bit of ironing, or if you're lazy, it just spray it with a spray bottle and hang it outside, right? Um, lazy or planned in advance. Uh, wrinkles are things that can be fixed. They're technical problems with technical solutions. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's emotional things. Sometimes it's a bad day. Um, sometimes, honestly, sometimes it's scheduling and finances and who's going to do this and who's going to do this. Uh, the structure of the home and how you work together in these areas. And there is no, just so you know, there's no breakdown of the man does these roles and the woman does these roles. That's not... That's not I do laundry and dishes, I do finances, my wife does all things insurance, because I 
I'm not good at that. My wife also does any haggling with salespeople because I will buy more. When Girl Scouts come to our door, I'm like, get away, get away. I call my wife out, okay? But know those roles. Which, who is good at this? And it's surprising. I do. I'm very, like, when, keep track of finances. I'm very, like, that's the one area of my life. That and how dishes go in the dishwasher. Those are the things that I'm very particular about. Nothing else. Wrinkles can be fixed. One thing that's helpful, Allison and I have started doing, is we use tech to deal with issues. If we have scheduling issues, who's going to do this? Who's going to take this? Text, email. Google Calendar has saved our marriage, right? Um, if I'm going to the grocery store, if there's over one thing for me to get, please text me a list. Don't presume that I'm going to remember it. If I'm in the milk aisle and my wife says, hey, don't forget the milk, there's still a 50-50 chance. <laughs> those are things, those are technical problems, which early on I would come home without milk and my wife would be like, you don't love me or value me because you didn't bring, you didn't remember, because her dad, you could tell her pick up milk in June next year, and he will remember it. That's his thing. Mine, not so much at all. But that was helpful. That was a technical problem. But then you have wrinkles. You have, or then you have spots. Think about what it takes to get a spot out. You scrub it, spray it, put it through the laundry, it comes out, it's still there, but it's not as powerful. So you scrub and wash again, but it's still there. Spots, these can be deep wounds, these can be insecurities, can, these can be deep levels of trust and fear, wounds from the rebellion, from the fall, that have just had to have been dealt with, that are now being exposed or pushed out in marriage. Men, listen to me. All right. Men, listen to me. These are not problems to be fixed. Does that make sense? These are not, your wife is not a project to be completed. Fix the problems that can be fixed, but these are not problems to be fixed. Your wife is a person to love, to cultivate, to be present with. These spots take, they take company to bear these burdens alongside her, to listen and value, to understand what she needs, what she wants, uh, and for you to remind her that because of Jesus, God delights in her, that she is a child of the king, that her value and worth are not dependent on the mirror or the scale or what so-and-so thinks about her or resolving these conflicts, but that you love her. For spots, um, you don't just come in and solve them. Oftentimes, it, it involves saying the same things over and over again without ever saying, how many times do I have to say this, okay? Let me just, from experience, let me tell you, if that slips out, which it may on occasion, take it back really quickly. Don't say that. Even if you're like, how many times do I have to tell you you're beautiful? What she does not hear right there is, I think you're beautiful. What she hears right there is, crap, I'm a burden. Guys, you, you sit and you listen and you be present. Shoot, men, let me give you something. Like, there are even times when you can sit down at a table and not say a word, and your wife gets to just puke out some stressful things, and then at the end of it, she feels better, and you don't have to say a thing. I, don't, I can't paint it any easier than that. 
Listen and be present. And stay off your phone. That's me. Um, this takes time. It takes presence. It takes communication. It takes trust. Without ever saying the words, yeah, without ever saying, how, how often do I have to tell you this? This is nourishing and cherishing your wife. This is what Paul talks about. Men, generally speaking, if you're pursuing your wife with humility, if you champion her, helping her, if you're listening to her, fighting alongside her for her soul, for her value and worth, and if you are with God's help and with God's people's help, we're never doing this alone. This is a communal effort. But if you're doing this, if you are, if you are giving up your life for her, chances are good she will find it a lot easier to submit and trust you. Wives, when you're encouraging and helping your husbands grow and develop and mature and trust and lead well, chances are good that he's going to be a better and better husband that, that you will enjoy. The essence of Christian marriage is serving one another. It gets really up close and personal it's a constant practice of how to love someone else as Christ has loved you. Sin gets tricky here. Um, sometimes we serve out of, uh, out of um, ulterior motives, and those need to be sought out and, and done away with. Uh, Tim Keller shares an example of this, which is better, because no, no offense to Tim Keller, but I have like a thousand examples of this, uh, not doing it well. Um, and he remembered one, so he's got me beat there. But he shares an example of they were, they were traveling with the kids, and they were going to a place they used to go by their old seminary, and he really wanted to go to the bookstore. But it was a long drive. The kids were grumpy. Everybody was just kind of whatever. And, and he wanted to go to the bookstore, but he was afraid to ask. He didn't want to bring it up. This was a hard day. And then they got home that night, and he was grumpy and upset and sulking because she should have known. And she said, what's wrong? And he said, he said I, I really wanted to go to that bookstore. And she said, why didn't you ask? I know you love that bookstore. I would have loved to given that gift to you. But you didn't ask because I served all day and I was giving up myself. But really what I wanted was, I've got millions of examples of those. Your spouse cannot read your expectations all the time. Um, and so to learn how to communicate. To serve one another also means to learn how to be served by your spouse not to take advantage, not to sulk, not to do it out of selfishness. Um, if someone is doing something you don't like or if somebody is not doing something that you would like to do, like them to do, to learn how to express that to one another, communicate well, and receive those efforts, uh, receive those things. Um, my wife and I did not fight well early on. Um, and one practical, very, very practical thing that we learned, my wife would, would close up, and I'm a preacher, so I would amp up, right? Um, one thing that we learned how to do is we would, we would call it off, and she would write me an email or she would write me a note. And that way she could think through and process everything that she wanted to say and how she wanted to say it. And then when I read it, I couldn't interrupt. <laughs> I couldn't go, yeah, but, well, I mean, but I don't really, like, she got to say everything she wanted to, and I was less defensive, and I couldn't manipulate stuff, and I couldn't turn it around, and we communicated really well, 
here's the deal, and this we'll, we'll, um, we're, we're wrapping up. There's a lot to get in here right before Thanksgiving. Um, what happened in Genesis 3, and this is what I see in so many relationships, it's easier for me to see it in everybody else's relationship than it is to see it in my own marriage. Um, and it's hard for me to see it in me. Um, when we are hurt or we are disappointed or our expectations are not met, we usually do not express it well. And if it's expressed to us, we usually don't take it well. This is what happens. Just like with Adam and Eve, we self-protect. Then we have a tendency to start interpreting everything coming at us from a a mode of self-protection. We start collecting data of painful memories and those are the things that we log, the disappointments, and we add those to our logbook, and, 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 and we just, everything just starts to pile up on that. It, am I the only one? Right? Anybody else experience that at all? Nobody? I mean, you don't have to show your hands, but I know it's true. 1 Corinthians 13, keep no record of wrongs. John Gottman, he's a marriage guy. He's not a follower of Jesus, but he suggests trying to compliment your spouse in those moments when you've logged all these bad things about them, trying to turn and compliment them. And, and often people will say, well, that feels disingenuous. And what he'll say is, no, what's disingenuous is this over here, the way you've logged all the complaints against them. A compliment will actually bring you back toward reality. But what we see in Scripture over and over again, to love is vulnerable. I wish there was a show, I wish there was a way to show people, to show myself. Um, the love of Jesus invites us, instead of turning away and interpreting everything from this self-protective mode, it invites us to actually turn toward and be vulnerable and risk getting hurt, risk getting let down, risk having our expectations not met. Um, I'll, I'm going to finish with this, illust- or this story from our marriage. We got married at 21. Uh, the, the kid that I told you about last week that uh, freaked us how, his wife out in Hawaii by not having any idea where we were going, um, we took a compatibility test uh, which was not supposed to, like, give us percentages. What it was supposed to do is tell us areas that were going to be struggles and areas that we could work on. But our guy, uh, this was a college professor, our, our guy told us we had a 15% chance of a happy marriage. It's so encouraging. <laughs> and, of course, at 21, young and stupid and full of hormones, we're like, no way! We can do this. Um, we're about 12 years into our marriage, we were having a passionate discussion. Some may call it an argument. I'm pretty sure I was right. Um, but what would happen, I wasn't necessarily a bad husband. I, 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 was, I was an okay husband, but what would happen is if my wife brought a critique about me, what I would do is I would massage it, and I would take it, and I would, you know, between the legs a couple times behind the back, and then present it back to her with, I, I know, I know I've got things that I need to work on. But let's talk about some of your stuff. And we had this argument, and we were right in the middle of it, and I sat down, and I think God just like stepped in, because I was quiet for 15 minutes. And if you know me, you know that that has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is what I saw. God gave me a vision of my wife, and she was like this. Spiritually, this was her posture. She knew. If I offer a critique, if I bring any criticism against him, it's going to come back at me. 
And all I could see was, I've been so, I've been trying to win the battle, and I've not even cared about the war. I've, I've been trying to be right. I've been more concerned about being right than I have been with what I'm doing to my wife. Twelve years into our marriage, and I have produced in her a position of, I've reinforced in her a position of defensiveness. And I just had to repent. And I repented of, to her, to God, that I had been more concerned about being right, that I had led her to this place, that she had, this was not a safe place for her. And even in repenting, and this was not what I was looking for. I was seeing the pile of junk that I needed to work on. But even in repenting, I, I could see her arms kind of coming down a little bit. And she would say, yeah, you know what, I've got, I, I know that there's stuff that I need to work on. Listen, what I want to tell you, polar opposite personalities, 15% chance of a, of a happy marriage. I want to tell you, I want, I want to give you hope. Four kids that are totally personal, different personalities. There, there is hope. We're 24 years in. We both still have wounds. We still argue. We get frustrated at each other for sure. But we say this to each other often, you're, you're home to me. I can't imagine life without you. I can't wait to get old and grumpy with my wife. I can't wait for cocktails at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a beach somewhere not caring what anybody thinks with, with my, my old woman on my side. Like I, want, I can't wait to grow old with her. We've learned how to appreciate these things in each other most of the time. I know now to have a map and a plan ready when we go on a trip, even though I want to be spontaneous. And she is much more tolerable of spontaneity in small doses as long as she knows that it's coming. <laughs> we haven't arrived yet, mostly because there is no such thing in marriage. But we've learned how to do it better. We've learned how to fight better. And if you're here this morning, for the sake of the church, married couples, honestly, one of the best things that you can do for the sake of the world around you, as you are growing and learning these things, is, is to let people in. Let in other married couples, let in singles, let in other people that, are, that may be wanting to get married. Let your kids in. In age-appropriate ways, let, let your kids in to the struggles and the fights. Peel back some of the curtains, allow people to look in, allow people to either get encouragement or to offer insight. Listen, marriage is not salvation. It's not. But marriage can be used in a lot of ways to press deep into us, to, to move us toward knowing and trusting Jesus all the more. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I pray, especially right now, for encouragement in marriages. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff going on, and uh, it's bringing up a lot of things. And so I pray that you would um, be present in each of these marriages. Um, none of us exist in a vacuum. Some of us have hurts and wounds. Some of us have various expectations. Some of us have things that it takes a lot of work and a lot of therapy and a lot of patience to deal with. 
Some of us have mistakes in our past. All of us have mistakes, but some of us have deep wounds. And, uh, and um, uh, this is what we do together as a community, as a church, to do these things well. And in marriage, sometimes those things can be pressed hard. So I pray for immeasurable grace, patience, wisdom, insight, that we would really turn from being self-protective in all of our friendships and all of our relationships, be willing to risk shame, be willing to risk disappointment and hurt, to love as you have loved. Trust that you will protect us, that you will heal us. And may we do this with wisdom. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.